We believe that this is the inerrant word of the one and only true and living God. It is the only infallible rule for our faith and its practice. So hear now the word of our God from Micah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You know, good literature, good stories, will always have moments that take your breath away. Moments where the story has been building in a certain way, and then the twist comes. And you become so enthralled in what will happen next that you can't put the book down. You can't turn the movie off. You have to know how the story ends. I remember reading Orwell's 1984 for the first time and having one such a moment where you reach the scene where the two main characters are finally caught by the thought police. They had been rebelling against Big Brother, this tyrannical government, for much of the book, and the reader was tempted to think that perhaps they would be able to get away with it forever. That is, until the hidden telescreen behind the wall in their hideout is revealed, you learn that Big Brother had been in control the whole time. Nothing they had done was secret. No plans that they had made were hidden. Big Brother had always been watching. He had always been in control. And it was only a matter of time before he stepped out of hiding to make clear what had always been the case. And so this section of the book of Micah is one of those twists in the story where the narrative has been going in a certain way, and here it all changes. The entirety of Micah chapter 3 is a story of the decay, the depravity, and the destruction of the city of man. And we see this in Micah chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, where the prophet says, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice 
Divination, which, by the way, divination is never good. That's what the pagans do. And its prophets not only practice divination, but they practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. So all through Micah chapter 3, Micah has been setting the stage, showing us the world in which the story is taking place, introducing us to the the main characters. Well, here in Micah chapter 4 comes the twist. For all of chapter 3, you take a good hard look at the city of man, that society that is doomed to destruction. You see societal rot. You see the rulers, the spiritual leaders, and finally you see the judgment. It's a tragedy from start to finish. Micah was a prophet of doom, crying out to a society beyond hope, or so it seemed. And indeed, the society in which Micah was preaching would eventually suffer the exact punishment and judgment that he had proclaimed. It took about a hundred years after Micah died, but it eventually did happen. God's people had rejected God's covenant. The covenant that had promised blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. All the way back in the time of Moses, the people of Israel had been warned of the judgment that awaited them if they forsook God's law, if they violated God's covenant. And yet Israel had never and would never keep the terms of the covenant anywhere near perfectly. It was becoming more and more clear to everyone that the covenant curses were coming There would be, as I said, about a century more of societal decline, and after that they would be conquered. Jerusalem would be destroyed. The Davidic kings would no longer reign over them. They would be carried into exile, and the kingdom of Judah would never be a kingdom again. And yet, the story wasn't over. For you see, though the earthly kingdom of Judah would be destroyed, though the city of man would be no more, the city of God would abide forever and ever. You see, Micah was a prophet of both doom and hope. So for all of chapter 3, he focused on doom, and then in chapter 4, he pivots and goes to hope. So if you need some hope this evening, if you look at the world around you and you're tempted to despair at the state of the city of man, well, Christians, take heart as we behold the city of God. Now, the hope in our text this evening starts right At the beginning, verse 1 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills. What a sharp change that is from the end of chapter 3 when Micah was proclaiming, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. 
in the mountain of the house a wooded height. You see this often in the prophets. We saw one this morning where the audience changes. The prophet switches from addressing people in his own day and addresses people not yet born. For all of chapter 3, the audience was the unbelieving world. Those were oracles of judgment against those who did not honor God, to those who did not believe His Word. And God's judgment is poured out on Jerusalem because those people had invited it. And yet, you can almost hear them throwing the accusation at the believers amongst them. How could your God let this happen? You serve a God who is all-powerful and all-loving, don't you? Well, then how could He allow all of the suffering that we see around us? Your God said, I will never leave you or forsake you, didn't He? Then how come it looks like He's never there to be found when you need Him the most? If these accusations sound familiar, you can take heart that they're not new. In fact, you can find them at least as far back as the Exodus generation. The people that saw the Nile turn to blood, they saw the, the frogs and the locusts and the flies, they saw darkness for three days throughout the land of Egypt, except where God's covenant people happened to be. They walked through the Red Sea on dry ground, only to see God use that very sea to destroy their enemies. They received water from the rock. Their food fell from the sky. And yet, whenever they faced hardship, who did they blame? God. And so, in Micah chapter 4, God does not want His people to lose heart. Amazing how patient He is with His people. That He knows those accusations will come, and so He does not want them to lose heart. He tells them, yes, the judgment will come. Yes, Jerusalem will be plowed like a field. Yes, the temple will be destroyed. Yes, the curses of the Mosaic law will be enacted. But that does not mean that God has forgotten His people. On the contrary, though only a remnant will survive the coming judgment, that remnant will become a seed that will grow. Though God's people will be reduced to only a small number one day, that will change. Not only will the fortunes of Israel be restored, but the nations will see and want to join God's people as well. And so the text says, And peoples shall flow to the mountain of the house of the Lord, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. And what a remarkable change this is indeed. Just think of how much faith you would have needed in order to believe it. After God poured out His judgment on Jerusalem, the people of Judah were not singing songs of triumph. They were singing songs like Psalm 137. They were singing by the waters of Babylon. There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? 
Think about being one of those Jewish exiles in Babylon, taunted day after day by their captors, being told, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How about that one where God tells all the kings of the earth to tremble in fear? To kiss the sun lest he be angry? Come on, you captive prisoners of war. Tell us about how great your God is. And all the while they laugh at you. Christians, do you sometimes look at the world around you and wonder if Christ's promise that the gospel will be proclaimed in all nations will be fulfilled? What about his promise to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? What about his promise to be with us always, even to the end of the age? What about his promise that he will work all things together for our good? And if you say yes and amen to all of those promises, then imagine, and this is just a hypothetical, what if perhaps tomorrow churches lost their tax-exempt status? You all have that up here, right? Okay. <laughs> I have to ask. But I'm serious. Imagine that tomorrow you were told, deny God's word or there will be civil and criminal penalties. Would you still believe God's promises? they would still be true. Christians, we have the promise that our God will establish His eternal kingdom. And that is a sure hope in the midst of persecution, war, hardship, necessity, danger, and uncertainty. The people of Jerusalem could have that hope of God's eternal kingdom even as Jerusalem was burning. And we can have that hope in our circumstances today. For one day, the beast that we read about in the book of Revelation will no longer be active. One day, the king will return and make all things new. One day, the dwelling place of God will be with, the, with, with men. He will dwell with us and we will be his people and God himself will be with us as our God. One day, the law of God will go forth from Jerusalem. And did you happen to notice that God's law was the first defining characteristic of God's city? The people flocked to Jerusalem in verse 2 because out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Christians, how often do you think of God's law as a blessing on society? Often when we speak about God's law, we talk about how it shows us what sinners we are and how we need a Savior and drives us to Christ. And it does. In fact, that's the law's primary function. It's not its only function. God's law actually helps to create a society that is good by restraining human depravity. And think about it this way. Imagine you lived in a society where homicide was no big deal, where sometimes people get murdered and that's just what happens and you kind of got to deal with it. Now imagine a society where, no, no, if you commit murder, you're going to prison for the rest of your life, which is a better place to live. I'm going with option two. I don't know about any of you. And you can do this with any of the commandments, lying, stealing, adultery. Ask yourself, which is better, a society where these things are allowed or a society where they are not? 
Now, of course, no one can keep God's law perfectly in this life. And when we are able to keep the law in the age to come, it will be because we have been fully sanctified because of the work of Christ to take away our sins and the work of the Spirit to make us holy. I need to be very clear that we believe that salvation is by grace alone, not by keeping God's law. And even the good works that we do are themselves the gifts of God's grace. And yet I don't want you to miss the difference between the city of man and the city of God. You see, the citizens of the city of God, by the regenerating work of God's Spirit, have been given new hearts so that they are able to walk in God's ways. Because of that, God's law is observed in that society. And that makes for a better place to live. For the whole of chapter 3, you see how the rulers seek to oppress the people, how they seek to enrich themselves, not only with no regard for the effect on others, but Micah describes them as like, you know, cooking the people and eating them. They enrich themselves with the express intention of harming other people in the process. You see, preachers that only care about themselves and how much money they can make, They disregard God's revelation in the pursuit of riches. And that makes society a bad, even a scary place to live. And yet our text this evening promises a day when it is not the case that every man does what is right in his own eyes. It promises a day when God's law, God's perfect standard of right and wrong will make for a peaceful, stable and happy society. Now, I will just comment in passing that there are some people that will take that reality that God's law makes for a better place to live and says we should apply that in the civil realm. No one has asked me if, if, the, if we should do that. I have no say over that. Um, but imagine this. Imagine just what an effect it would have on society if all of us today maybe read our shorter catechisms and looked at the the duties required and the sins forbidden and tried to order our lives according to that. Imagine what a difference that would make in society now if every Christian sought to walk as Christ walked. Just some food for thought. For you see, Micah is promising us that one day everyone will know the Lord, and everyone will walk according to His ways from the least to the greatest. One day, King Jesus will reign supreme over all. Now, of course, Jesus is reigning now, but His reign now is veiled. It's hidden. We confess Him as King by faith now, but when He returns, our sight will behold Him as such. Our text says he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. Christ will be the perfect king, the perfect ruler. Even the most popular politician in the world will always have someone to come forward as a critic. But not so with Christ. 
He is the king who is greater than David. His wisdom surpasses that of Solomon. And under his rule, humanity will see the first ever state with no war. The text says, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. You know, it would probably take far too long to actually do the research to confirm this, but I'd bet there's never been a single generation in human history without war. Perhaps that generation was too young or too old to fight when the war came, but I think it's likely that every generation has seen at least one war in its lifetime. Have you ever taken the time to think about how tragic it is that humanity will go out and try to kill each other? Sometimes they do it for land, sometimes over a, a treaty violation, sometimes simply over the principle of the thing. They inflict bloodshed and misery and devastation on each other. But not so when Christ returns. Christ is the Prince of Peace, and He will usher in peace that has no end. Now, if you're wondering how you become a citizen of this kingdom, this city of God, I have good news and bad news. The bad news is that many in this world will not be citizens of that kingdom. As our text itself says, all the peoples walk each in the name of his God. And that's still true even today. In Micah's day, they might have named the gods different things, but humanity still has its idols. All people still exchange the glory of God for something else, something that they can control. Because we are all sinners, we exchange the truth for a lie. We many times set ourselves up as gods of our own making. And every time we transgress what God's word says, we set ourselves up as our own gods because we show that we value our own desires above God's desires as He has revealed them to us in His Word. That's the difference between the city of man and the city of God. In the city of man, the citizens detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. In the city of man, they call good evil and evil good. But in the, in the city of God, the citizens say with boldness, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Now, you may think to yourself then, okay, pastor, I'll start trying to follow God's law. That way I can be a citizen of the city of God by keeping God's law. Well, I'm sorry to say, but it doesn't work that way. You see, each and every one of us are natural-born citizens of the city of man. And all natural-born citizens of that city deserve God's wrath and curse, both in this life and in that which is to come. There is nothing that we can do to change that. But there is someone who can. You see, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, 
came to the city of man. He walked in that city. He lived in that city. He was rejected and put to death by that city. And in so doing, he took the penalty for the sins of all who trust in him. His death satisfied divine justice for you if you come to him in faith. When you believe that his death is your death and his resurrection is your resurrection, when you believe that not only for others but for you, Christ is sufficient for your salvation. All those who trust in him for salvation need not fear the destruction of the city of man. For you see, all who trust in him have had their citizenship transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And all they need to do now is wait for the king of that city to return and usher in the age where swords are beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. They need not fear this present evil age because they know that it will come to an end on the day when our God makes all things new. For Christians, this is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So teach us, O Lord, to walk as citizens of the age to come. For your word tells us that anyone who says that he is in Christ must also walk in the same manner in which he walked. We know that we will never do so perfectly. We know that we will always have to run back to you knowing that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And yet you have promised that all who are in Christ will be enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. So help us to walk in the hope of that day when all things will be made new. It is through Christ our Savior we pray. Amen.